Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motz, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss the text for the 17th Sunday after Pentecost. We hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this discussion over these passages. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. Uh, this is Peter Lightheart, and I'm here with Brian Motes. And we're also joined with Alistair Roberts, who's in Durham, and joining us for this discussion of the readings for the 17th Sunday after Pentecost in 2018. That's September 16th. And the readings for this Sunday are Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 10, James 3, verses 1 through 12, and then Mark 9, verses 14 through 29. Uh, Last episode, we covered the last part of Mark 7. We skipped Mark 8, obviously. Something happened to Mark 8 in in the lectionary. And then we also skipped the first part of Mark 9, which is the transfiguration, there is at least a reason for skipping the first part of Mark 9 because that's an assigned reading for Transfiguration Sunday, which took place back in February. I suppose we discussed the Transfiguration at the time. I'm sure we did, but uh, I, I know, Alistair, that you've done a lot of work on the Transfiguration uh, over the years, and I thought we'd start w- by talking about that. And um, it's not part of the reading for this week, but it's part of the background for the for the section of Mark that we're re- that that's assigned for this week, and it's essential, I think, to get that background in the Transfiguration before we move into the assigned reading. So, you have the floor. Tell us about the Transfiguration. The Transfiguration within Mark's Gospel, and I think you also have the record of it in Luke's Gospel. I think is the fullest in various respects, but it's significant in a number of ways, and the manner in which it plays upon the story of Israel to that point, the way that it highlights figures like Elijah and um, Moses. In Luke, it talks about Christ's exodus that he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem, literally exodus. And the bringing up of three other persons with Christ at that point, um, Peter, James, and John, the three pillars or the three um, stones alongside the cornerstone of Christ for the new foundation of the church. There is this reference to tabernacles um, within Luke's gospel. And then there's a number of other details of that would that connect it with the events of Sinai. The transfiguration is the glorification of Christ's face. We see in Exodus, Moses' face shines as he sees the glory of God and a veil is placed across it. But yet Christ's face shines from within itself, not as a vision of something else being reflected, but his own proper glory. Within the Gospels, particularly within John, I think there's an exploration of these themes of Christ's glory and the connection of that with theophany themes. So there's allusions to theophanies. Um, Abraham um, seeing Christ um, or the reference, the allusion to the Bethel incident that um, hereafter you'll see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. 
the reference to Christ as full of grace and truth and the glory for glory that there's in Moses what Moses saw the declaration of God's name is being alluded to there but Christ brings that greater glory that greater grace because he is the one who was seen also he talks about when Isaiah saw Christ's glory in Isaiah 6 so all of these Allusions back to Theophanies, I think, suggest that Christ is God's great Theophany. And the Transfiguration is also an event that can be paired with the beginning of Christ's ministry within the baptism. That within the baptism of Christ, that begins the first stage phase of Christ's ministry. And the second phase of Christ's ministry ends with the, or the first stage ends with the death of John the Baptist and rumors around Christ being John the Baptist raised from the dead. And then the testimony of Peter and Christ turning his face towards Jerusalem and preparing his disciples for the fact of his crucifixion, that begins phase two. And the transfiguration is this key event marking that new beginning. So just as the father testified to his son and commissioned him for his ministry in the first stage, what we have in the second stage is another declaration of Christ's identity by the father. This, the Exodus themes also, particularly within Luke's gospel, spread throughout the whole chapter beforehand. So in Luke, it's connected with the feeding of the 5,000. And the mountain comes after that. So there's the manna type scene in the wilderness, leading the people out and giving them food. But then they go up into this high mountain and there's the appearance of God's glory and the reference to the tabernacles, Elijah and Elisha that represent the law and the prophets, and also that are connected to other figures that are present in the narrative at that time. So Elijah and Eli or Elijah and Moses rather, Elijah and Moses are both these prophets that come before someone else. Um, so Elijah precedes Elisha who goes into the land and Moses precedes Joshua precedes Joshua and both of them are very closely both Elisha and Joshua have close analogies with Christ as or Jesus whose name is very closely connected with their own and so I think these themes are important as we go into this scene that immediately follows it sets the scene for some of the events that follow in particular I think it reminds us of the Exodus Sinai situation and as Moses descends from the mountain, he's left Aaron and he's been in charge of the people and then he finds that Aaron has failed. And I think that provides a very helpful background for thinking about the healing of the possessed son in um, chapter 14, verse 14 following. Um, continue on the theme of the transfiguration just for a couple of minutes. Um, in, in all of the synoptics, the transfiguration comes immediately after Jesus' declaration. Here in Mark, it's in Mark 9.1. Truly, there are some standing who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That's not exactly Mark's language, but that's the, that's the language of the other, synopt, uh, other synoptics. Um, so, and, then, and then the transfiguration immediate, immediately follows that. And I think what Jesus is referring to when he talks about the coming of the kingdom is the full coming of the new covenant that happens after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the 
verse uh, Mark 9:1 is a brief anticipation of what Jesus expands on in Mark 13, which is the Olivet Discourse. He's not he's not talking directly there about the transfiguration. Obviously, everyone who's standing there are, is going to be there when he's transfigured. So it's it would be odd for him to say, some of you are going to be standing here when they see the Son of Man, Son of Man coming in his kingdom. But I think the transfiguration connected with that is a it's a confirmation as it were or it's has some it has some connection with the glory of the son of man that he's going to display at the end of the age and any any thoughts on that have you have you thought through the connection between that um eschatological statement the the coming of the kingdom and the transfiguration i think that particularly comes out in the beginning of second peter where in verses 16 to 21 of chapter 1 Peter's dealing with this situation where various people who are the first witnesses to Christ are dying off and the question of is this event going to take place and so he says we did did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but were eyewitnesses of his majesty for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word made more sure, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. And I think that brings those two things together, that the event of the transfiguration is a guarantee of that coming that's going to come in the future. We see the glory of the king in this event, and that glory we're just waiting for the time that's going to be unveiled. But the king in his glory has already been revealed. And so I think there is that anticipatory vision of that event that is going to happen later. And that's exactly how Peter uses it at this juncture. Right. And and so that's how I take the, the latter part of Second Peter 1, that um, the prophetic word is made more sure. I think it's specific. It's not... Peter does talk about more generally about the source of the prophetic words of God, that all of them come from holy men who were carried by the Holy Spirit. But when he says this, when he sees the prophetic word, I think he's talking about this specific prophecy about the coming of the kingdom. Uh, the other, the other question I wanted to ask was uh, ask you to expound a little more on the connection you're drawing between Jesus coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration and finding the apostles unable to cast the demon out of this boy. You drew a parallel between that and Aaron, and Moses coming down and finding Aaron at the foot of the mountain uh, and then worshiping the golden calf. I can, uh, that, that's in a, in a kind of general narrative structural sense that that makes sense. And you also have verse 19, um, Jesus rebukes the disciples uh, as being part of an unbelieving generation. I think that that language of, Whenever Jesus talks about this generation or the unbelieving generation or the faithless generation, uh, there's a connection with the post-Exodus generation that grumbled against God, that was uh, rebellious in the wilderness. That So Jesus is like a Moses leading the people through wilderness to a new promised land. And then 40 years of his, uh, that includes his lifetime and then the, the generation after that. That's the unbelieving generation. So that that connection makes sense. But I I wonder if you could ex- expand a little bit on the connection you were seeing between this episode and the episode of the golden calf. Yes. I think the more general pattern is that Jesus has left certain people in charge in his absence and given them a 
commission them to do a particular task. Um, and they're supposed to be able to cast out to deal with this demon, but they they are unable to. And in the same way, Aaron, the demon-possessed child, is in very many ways like the people of Israel. Aaron was unable to restrain the Israelites, and the disciples couldn't restrain the demon. There are certain verbal parallels that might suggest something going on here, particularly within Luke's gospel, there's the demons throwing the boy to the ground and shattering him. Um, and that language, I think, is suggestive. The statements of faithless and perverse generation, or faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? That language is very much taken up from Moses. I think Numbers 14, um, places like that, that, or I think in the end of Deuteronomy where, I'm trying to remember, is it perverse generation, children in which there's no faith. And so I think there's a, a broader connection here. Um, I wouldn't put too much weight on mm -hmm. it. I think mm -hmm. the main weight is placed upon the transfiguration parallels and the way that that connects with Sinai and with the more the broader Exodus themes. I think we see the same thing going back in the text, particularly in Luke, the connections with preceding accounts of feeding of the 5,000, things like that, that those connect with uh, the broader Exodus theme, but the weight really rests upon the, the transfiguration account itself. Right. Yeah, and it, um, I mean, the, again, in the broad sense, you have Jesus, like Moses, coming from the mountain and coming down to a the leaders of a new Israel who are proving to be faithless and incompetent. But I was thinking... Um, the, the fact there's also the throwing into the fire and the water mm. i wonder whether there's something going on there mm. interesting the idol being <laughs> thrown into the fire and coming out as it were and then the later ground and put on the water mm. yeah interesting but that would be stretching things perhaps but yeah. i'm not sure the fact that the disciples are incapable of doing this is surprising because it uh, I, I haven't uh, i haven't located in mark but i know in uh Matthew, they've already been casting out demons. Jesus sends them out in Matthew 10. They're going out to preach, uh, to heal, cleanse the le cleanse lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, and they come back rejoicing at the power that they've been given. That's in chapter 10. In Matthew, uh, the transfiguration takes place in chapter 17. So they've already been casting out demons prior to this, and then suddenly they're incapable of doing this. Maybe Jesus' statement in verse 29, this is in Mark 9, uh, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer elsewhere, prayer and fasting. Uh, maybe there's a, there are degrees of demon possession. There are, demons have varying uh, degrees or varying types of power. And this is a kind of demon that the disciples hadn't encountered before. Uh, but that the, their failure after they had already been uh, performing exorcisms is um, is puzzling. Yeah, I'm puzzled as you are on that particular one. Yeah. We do have a reference to many different types of demons within the New Testament and suggestions of demons that are particularly, or for instance, some possessed by several demons or the legion that possess the demoniac in the Gad that go into the Gadarene swine and then the stronger 
um, man casting out the demons that wander about and then come back with worse demons. Mm-hmm. Right. There is this sense of gradation there. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, I'm not sure. I'll be speculating. Yeah, and it does seem like there's a one of the themes of Mark in particular, but the, the synoptics, uh, all of the synoptics, but particularly in Mark, is the the disciples and their progress or lack thereof in coming to know Jesus and in coming to share in His ministry. Uh, that's a that's a major theme, but uh, and I, maybe what we're looking at in Mark is a uh, that 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 movement is more varied and per- maybe particularly it's a, it's as they draw nearer to Jerusalem the transfiguration as you said is the is the beginning of Jesus movement toward Jerusalem it's that transition point in the gospel story and as they move to Jerusalem they're becoming their uh, uh faithfulness in following Jesus their ability to do Jesus mission has actually decreased i'd also add to this that there is the general pattern of Christ being baptized and then facing off against Satan in the wilderness after this period of prayer and fasting. And here the disciples are called to do the same thing, but they fail. Um, yes. So I think that pattern of um, theophanic appearance of this commissioning event followed by a failure um, draws our attention back to the event of the baptism of Christ as he's commissioned for his ministry, then the prayer and fasting and facing off against Satan and his success. Yeah, and maybe that 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 suggests a kind of variation on the, the theme I was suggesting before, that instead of thinking about the disciples kind of losing their, becoming less faithful as the gospel goes on, maybe what you have is the first part of the gospel is Jesus as the as the again, particularly Mark, as the strong man who's carrying out all these acts of strength. In the second half of the gospel, which is inaugurated by the transfiguration, the disciples are brought up into that, and that's when their weakness and their unbelief is thrown into prominence because now they're supposed to be joining with Jesus in this uh, mission, and they're proving themselves incapable of doing that at this point. So maybe maybe you're looking at... uh, it's kind of an Elijah-Elisha movement. Uh, you have the lone Jesus confronting Satan after the baptism, but then after the transfiguration, it's not Jesus at all. It's the disciples, and that's the beginning of this, these, two, these two movements. One, the solo Jesus, and the other, Jesus with the community of the disciples. In that context, it's also worth considering the connection between um, the rebuking of Satan at the temptations and then the rebuking of Peter, get behind me, Satan, immediately before the transfiguration. Right. Yes, good point. I think we'll leave the some of those puzzles unanswered and uh, leave them for our listeners to uh, puzzle through. And uh, let's, let's look at the uh, uh, James passage, the epistle reading for this week. Again, we're in the uh, readings for the 17th Sunday after Pentecost. And uh, that's for September 16th, 2018. The reading is James 3, verses 1 through 12. And this is uh, a a well-known part of James's uh, epistle where he's dealing with the sins of the tongue and warning about the the misuse of the tongue. He uses a variety of different uh, images to express the uh, significance and power of the tongue. It's like a bit in a horse's mouth that directs the entire body of the horse. 
it's like the rudder of a ship that directs the entire direction of a ship. Even though it's a very small part of the ship, it's the one that determines which direction the ship is going to go. The tongue is a fire, and even though it's only a little spark, it can create these conflagrations, these these huge forest fires, and as verse 6 warns, uh, it sets sets on fire the course of life and is set on fire by hell. So it's a flame, and the, the tongue can become a means of kind of spreading hellish flames around. And then he ends with ends this with a, a rebuke about the duality of the of speech. Um, it's improper for a single fountain to give both fresh water and uh, bitter water. It's it's not right for a fig tree to produce olives or a vine to produce figs. It's not right for a tongue to both bless God and to curse our neighbor. So that that doubleness is part of his message. So that um, I think that all has general application, but the. Uh, sometimes those uh, those verses about the tongue uh, are detached from the context at the beginning of the chapter, which is a warning about teaching. Let not many of you be teachers, knowing that we shall incur a stricter judgment. And then he goes off into the uh, discussion of speech. The immediate uh, the the immediate context of speech is the speech of a teacher. Again, it, I think those. Those warnings and those images have wider import, but if you they, they take on a somewhat different coloring when you think about it as the 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 tongue of the teacher that's in view. So the teacher is the one who's the bit in the horse's mouth. The teacher is the one who's the rudder for a ship. Uh, you can think of a ship of state or the church as a ship. Uh, what's directing, setting the course for that ship? It's the tongue, but it's not just the tongue in general. It's the tongue of the teacher, and it's. Uh, the tongue of a teacher that can set a uh, an entire community, entire world on fire, if it's uh, draws its flame from from hell. In looking through the book of Proverbs again recently, and one of the things that has struck me, well, a couple of things have struck me. The first is how much of the book is about developing something that is goes before knowledge, but undergirds our whole quest for knowledge and truth a good sense and that good sense is the ability to sniff out where wisdom is to have an eye for wisdom and um, have a ready heart for wisdom and also to be able to discern who is a good guide who is a bad guide who is good company on the road towards wisdom who are those who will draw us astray and the attention to speech was something that really struck me the reference to the worthless man whose speech is like a scorching fire, um, or the fool is constantly described as the babbling fool, the person who can't help but breathe out folly, and the liar who breathes out lies, that this is something that just comes naturally to him. Um, the mouth of the fool is a rod for his back, um, that he brings his own judgment upon him. Um, and the person who has rash words... Um, who those words compared to sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And so this emphasis upon wisdom and the tongue and controlling one's speech and controlling oneself, and then the connection of that with the quest for wisdom and the sort of people that we should surround ourselves with, the sort of people that we should seek as teachers, it seems to me that James is incredibly deeply grounded within the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, but in this chapter, perhaps particularly so. 
Yeah, I agree. Uh, James, uh, in, a, in a lot of different respects, uh, resembles the book of Proverbs. Um, and, yeah, particularly emphasis on the tongue. And as you said, the, part of the warning of the Proverbs is just, uh, it's, yeah, it's the babbling fool. It's the, the fool who can't help but speak folly. But it's also somebody who just can't help but speak. <laughs> um, somebody who says too many things and talks too much. It, it's uh, uh, the uh, amount of speech is, a, is one of the things that uh, Proverbs uh, has, uh, warns about. And also, as you said, the, the various misuses of the tongue. I've been uh, thinking this past week about the, the Sixth Commandment as I'm preparing a sermon uh, on it and uh, thinking about the different, different forms of violence that the Bible talks about. Uh, the Bible condemns violence in, in all its forms and doesn't restrict that just to physical violence. Uh, uh, sometimes uh, violence takes the form of a, an unjust economic practice, for example, in Micah. It talks about unjust weights and measures and in that same context warns about the violence of the wealthy. There's violence done to the property of a person or there's violence done to the reputation of a person by slanders and libels. So the tongue is the proverbs bring this up too. The proverb, there are a couple of proverbs that talk about the the tongue as a as a kind of weapon, uh, a weapon of aggression and one that can that can harm, and that does what the Bible describes as violence. To go back to James, the uh, apply all of that to somebody who's a teacher. All the all the warnings and instruction in proverbs about speech. Think about that in the context of teaching. A teacher can be a babbling fool just by talking too much. A teacher can do can do violence through what he says. Uh, he can uh, destroy reputations and uh, spread lies and uh, about about others. James has a particular focus that I think is uh, important to keep in mind, particularly for those those of us who are pastors and have the privilege of being teachers in the church. The contrast that you have between the tongue is that small thing that can guide something great in a fruitful and helpful direction. And the tongue is that little thing that can carelessly spark off a great conflagration. That contrast also reminds me of some of the contrast that Proverbs draws, where, for instance, the tongue of the wicked is constantly connected with the idea of the snare, the, the trap. Um, whereas the tongue, tongue of the righteous is connected with fruit, mm. with sowing things, with a more a different sort of action. And I think there are similar things playing here that just the stark contrast between that a little thing and a great thing, the small spark and the great fire, the little rudder and the great ship. Um, and in both of these cases, I think we're seeing... Um, something about a deeper contrast coming to the surface that the evil careless use of the tongue is something that sets traps and starts fires um, and that is something that just can't be controlled there's something once the word is out there it can't be taken back and it, you can't just stop a forest fire uh, it's something that takes a tremendous amount of labor just from a little spark that has been um, set off. On the other hand, if the tongue is well controlled and the idea of the, the bridle is, in one sense, it's 
connected with the little thing that controls the larger thing. But it's also a suggestion that the bridle is in the mouth, that the little thing that must be controlled first, that will then give you control over everything else, is the mouth. Yeah, and, and James says all this, um, and he he never heard of Twitter, amazingly <laughs> enough. Um, well, I think, yeah. There's something about the um, the babbling fool, and the fool will breathe out his folly, and the fool, you don't need to ask to explore whether someone is a fool most of the time. You just need to listen to them. There's something about Twitter that <laughs> tends to flush that out. <laughs> yeah, a Twitter, Twitter among many other uh, many other venues of the time. I, th- I do want to uh, go back to the point you were making there at the end that um, James issues a warning about being being a teacher and the the higher accountability for a teacher. At the same time, that higher accountability uh, is uh, or that position also puts you in a position to. Is you uh, to use the image that you used to sow seeds and to produce much fruit. Both of those have to be; they're dependent on each other. The the positive and the negative. The reason why there's such a great accountability and such great danger is because of the power of speech and the power that a teacher can have, the authority that it can teach uh, that a teacher can have. Now that's a huge privilege, and it can be enormously beneficial to the world and to God's kingdom if it's done well and if if it's a if the words that we speak are seeds that are planted to produce fruit. I do want to, um, I know you've done a lot of thinking also about um, the etiquette and of the, of the internet. And I think that's relevant to what, uh, what we're saying. One, maybe one way to get into this is to think about the, uh, the phenomenon of, again, to focus on James's comments, the phenomenon of teaching and the fact that uh, the internet provides a venue for people who are not in fact qualified in any way to be teachers who've not been uh, tested or uh, evaluated by anyone else to take on the position of being a teacher to take on a position of uh, instructing others just because they have the technical capacity to set up a wordpress site yeah i think there are a number of ways in which this teaching really relates to some of the issues that we face online. Certainly the idea of the forest fire, the virality of things online. We talk about things that almost, in terms of contagion, in terms of these images of spread that can't just be, you can't stop it once something has gone viral or once something has, a firestorm has erupted. There's just no way to stop it. And that, would be true in a village in the ancient world, but it's even more true on Twitter. I think also the, the one of the challenges for me is the way that Proverbs talks a lot about the power of the word in season. The person who's able to weigh their words and choose the right, right word for the right situation. The problem is, on someone like um, the internet, there is almost, you put your words into this shot thing that will just fire them all over the place and you don't do not know where they will end up um you do not know what context they'll be heard within um how they will resonate within that particular context now you always had that to an extent with a book but nowhere near as much as you do on social media where things will be snatched from any context and spread around without any 
context that will give a clear sense of where those words are coming from, to whom they are directed, and the time in which they've been spoken. And that in itself has made me wonder about how we're supposed to best conduct ourselves in an environment where it's almost impossible to use words with precision, to give words in season, where we have to be all things to all men, but all things to all men simultaneously. <laughs> and that just does not work well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I know that part of your answer to that question is to imagine and create spaces within the internet where uh, seasonable words are possible, where, you, where it's possible to say the, the right word in the right setting that's like uh, apples of gold in settings of silver. Uh, and as you say, that's very difficult to do when you've got a global and unlimited setting uh, and, uh, you know, and the timing is instantaneous. Uh, but if you, if you create these more circumscribed zones, uh, that's, that might make it possible to have an, a, an edifying, an edifying word spoken at the right time. Yes. And I think a further thing along with that is the way that, particularly on social media, it's far more broadcast speech than anything that comes from the pulpit for the most part. But yet what happens from the pulpit is official and authorized. It's um, public speech in the more traditional sense of that. But what is on social media is personal, it's informal, it's unofficial, but it spreads far wider than anything that is official in most of our mm. churches. And that, I think, creates problems in itself. It creates the problem of how do you weigh the words that you spread in this context? Are you just giving your informal opinion? But if you're giving your informal opinion on some matter um, that you're not particularly informed upon, and then you give an opinion on some matter that really is important from the pulpit, how are people going to weigh those words mm -hmm. once they've seen you not really weigh your words in the informal mm. context of social media? Mm. And so that Guarding of the tongue, I think, is particularly important in our current context, where we're so easily tempted to have an opinion on everything. Mm. And not just tempted, but we're expected to. Mm -hmm. If you do not have a stance on whatever the issue of the day is, um, you are seen to be failing in some respect. But sometimes it's best just to hold our tongue and to weigh our words and only use our words when they can have weight. Yeah, and I'm, I'm uh, one of my one of my fond wishes is that I could go through maybe two or three days without seeing the phrase "break silence" or something uh, similar in a headline. Virtually, virtually every day I see three or four headlines: "So and so breaks silence about such and such." And with the the and again the import behind the implication behind that is that you're supposed to have an opinion uh, and an expressed public opinion about everything. Let's uh, briefly, at least, uh, touch on the. Uh, Old Testament passage for this week, uh, Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 10. And uh, just I'll just offer a couple comments. The, uh, this is one of the servant uh, passages of Isaiah, which begin back in the 40s and then, of course, continue to the uh, climax in Isaiah 53. And this is one that we have uh, begin to have a vision of, uh, of a suffering servant, a servant who is opposed to, who gives his back for striking his cheeks to the one who plucks out his beard, who's humiliated and spit upon, spat upon, and yet who continues to uh, keep 
moving in uh, the direction that the Lord has called him. He continues to be obedient to the Lord. Uh, this also fits with what we had uh, talked about last week from Isaiah 35, because this picks up on the imagery of a dysfunctional body. Isaiah 50 verse 4, the Lord God, Master Yahweh, has given me a, the tongue of disciples. So uh, as Isaiah himself was given the words of God when his uh, at his commissioning and the, the coal was touched on his lips, he can now speak with a with the, the lips of a seraphim, he can he's a fire breather. The servant here is given a tongue so that he can speak uh, the Lord's word. He also has an open ear. Still in verse 4, he awakens my ear to listen as the disciple. Verse 5, the Lord has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. That imagery of the open ear, as we talked about last time, is uh, picking up on the ritual for making a permanent slave and it's part of the priestly ordination rite. Uh, but the servant is, he's within Israel, within the social body of Israel, where the entire body is bandaged and broken and full of bruises. The, the body is dysfunctional. Uh, they have eyes, but they can't see. The ears, they can't hear. They have lips and tongues, but they can't speak rightly. The Lord within that uh, social body is forming a servant who has functional ears and a functional tongue. He can speak the words of the Lord. Uh, the servant has is that uh, embodiment of a properly organized social body. But precisely because his ear is open to the Lord, precisely because he speaks the word of the Lord, he's opposed by the uh, broken body of Judah. The, the people want to silence him. The people want to put him off course. And uh, the more he's, the more firmly he's obedient, the more res- resolutely he acts the more they oppose him. Uh, one, one last uh, note, and then uh, see if you have any thoughts on this passage. Verse 8, uh, the drawing on courtroom imagery, he who vindicates me is near, who will contend with me? Let us stand together, uh, stand up to each other, who has a case against me, let him draw near. So there's a, a courtroom scene, the charges are being brought. Previously, it seems like a torture scene. Gives his back to those who strike, his cheeks to those who pluck out the beard, but now he's on trial, he's in the dock. But he's confident that he will be vindicated. The servant is confident that he'll be vindicated because the, uh, the Lord is with him. In fact, the, the, uh, the terminology is the Lord is one with me. Uh, the, Lord is in the, uh, the Lord, as it were, is in the dock along with the servant. And because of that, the servant is, is certain that in spite of this opposition, the Lord will vindicate him and his obedience will be rewarded. One thing that maybe provides further context for this chapter in the preceding chapters is the um, diatribe against idolatry, where Israel is becoming um, obstinate and it's getting a stiff neck like an iron sinew and a brow like bronze. And these descriptions that very closely relate Israel to an idol and those who form idols becoming like them. And this chapters the chapters preceding that talk a lot about the formation of these idols and the way that the idolaters are also those who gradually become closed up their ears are closed their eyes are blinded their necks become stiff and their hearts become hard there's a gradual closing down of the body whereas god as he sets up his servant he sets up his servant as his image and his image is one that has opened eyes, has an opened ear, and is awakened and alive and is quite in contrast to the images of the idolaters that proceed.
the um, references to stiff necks and hardness of heart and uh, also, of course, go back to uh, the uh, Exodus. Uh, Exodus, Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened or strengthened against the Lord. Uh, Israel was a stiff-necked people in the wilderness. And so that imagery, it's because of their adherence to idols, they're becoming like the idols. But that's also part of the larger imagery of Exodus, uh, that the Lord is going to, through his servant, the Lord is going to bring them out from that place of idolatry, and he's going to give them new life. He's going to make them capable of walking and speaking and hearing and seeing and uh, bring them back into the land. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm